Well, good morning, church. How are y'all doing today? Y'all are small, but you are mighty. So it's a joy to see all of your faces and your name tags here. In case you missed it, you're wondering why everybody's wearing a name tag. It's name tag month. We're trying to get to know everybody, so for the next couple weeks, when you come in, there'll be that big table of name tags. Be sure to grab one, uh, because we are a family here at First Alliance. We like to call ourselves the First Alliance family, and so uh, we want to make sure that we know everybody. Hard to be a family with somebody if you don't know them, and so that is our heart and our goal in that, but uh, I just want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank everyone for joining us on the stream who's watching. I know so many of our First Alliance family are are sick, uh, battling COVID again, of all things, um, and so we just, our heart certainly goes out to them and their families, and we pray for, for them. Um, as you can tell, I'm not Pastor Paul. Uh, Pastor Paul ended up testing positive for COVID yesterday morning, and so I got that surprise phone call that associate pastors tend to get of, hey, I'm not going to be there in 24 hours, I need you to preach. So I'm sorry. But uh, it is a joy uh, and an honor to be able to come and to share God's Word with you this morning uh, and so uh, before, we, before we get into our time of worshiping through hearing God's word preached, let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God, Lord, we love you and we thank you. God, we thank you for the truths that those songs declared this morning. Lord, that, let that last song just ring true in our hearts. That in our deepest soul, our desire above everything else is that we would rather have Jesus. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, open minds. Lord, we know that your spirit is among us, so we pray that you would open our eyes to see the work that your spirit is doing through us and in us. And so God, we pray and we thank you that you allow us to, to come to these times of, of worship, to come to these times when when we can interact with the living God through your word. We, we thank you that we can come to these just as we are, but Lord, we also pray from the depths of our soul that we will not leave here like we came, but that we will leave a little bit more shaped into the image of Christ for your glory, for our joy. Lord, make much of yourself in our hearts and in our minds through the preaching of your word this morning. Hide me behind the cross that your word may be proclaimed to your people and the power of the gospel will go out. Because your word alone has the power to change and the power to bring people back to you. And so, Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I have a friend named Victor. He's one of my best friends. In fact, if he's watching, hey, Vic, how you doing, bud? Uh, he watches sometimes. So now I'm going to have to tell him to go on and watch today because he got a shout out. But he was one of my roommates in college. He's been a, a, a partner in ministry for years, um, but a great friend. When we were living together, I learned something about Victor, and that is that Victor has a love, and I mean a love, for shoes. I don't get it. I have like three pairs of shoes. But Victor loves sneakers. He collects sneakers. In fact, in his house... Uh, he, he got, uh, last, right before I came to First Alliance, I was actually out in California doing his wedding, so I don't know if McKenna has let him keep his sneaker room, uh, but at that point, he had a sneaker room uh, where he kept all of his shoes on display and organized, and I remember several times when we were living together in college that uh, Victor would be up super early in the morning, I'd be like, bro, you don't have class till like 12, why are you awake? And he'd be like, there's a sneaker drop, and I gotta get in the virtual line so that I can order these. I'm like, oh, whatever, man. But that introduced me to this whole world of sneaker culture. And so the other night, I was up super late, and I found myself, maybe some of you can relate, in what I like to call the YouTube spiral. That is where I just start watching a video, and then that leads to another video, and then pretty soon I'm watching something about something that has nothing to do with any of that, but I can't stop. And so I'm laying there, it's about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, why am I awake and watching this? But what I found myself watching was videos from these big sneaker conventions where people go to buy and trade these like really expensive sneakers. 
And it was fascinating to me because of the way that when someone was coming in and they would want to trade or, or sell a pair of sneakers, that the, the person behind the counter, behind the table there, the vendor would have to like authenticate it. And all the crazy things that they did, they would check the colors and check the stitching. My personal favorite is they would lift it open and they would smell the inside of it. Because apparently an unworn pair of Nike Air Jordans has a very particular smell uh, that they can actually tell if that's one of the ways that they are authentic. And so what they're doing is they're looking for all of these guiding marks, right? All of these, these, these guide points and these guideposts to make sure that they're authentic. And it's crazy because they have all of these things. But when they look at the individual results of each of these tests, the color's right and the stitching's right, the fabric is right, the smell is right, they can say, this is authentic. I think it's also true for us as Christians that there are certain guideposts and guide points along our way in our life and markers that mark out our Christian life that if we or others around us are able to look at those and examine those, when they look at each one individually, the sum total answer proves the authenticity of our faith in Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at some of these guideposts of the Christian life. Guiding truths for the Christian life in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1-4. through 4. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn there with me. One of the coolest things about 1 John chapter 1 is that when John starts off his letter, he could have talked about anything. He could have talked about his role as an apostle. He could have talked about the trials that he was facing. He could have talked about the cool stories that he had been a part of and experienced. But what John does before everything else to establish this letter is he talks about Jesus. You see, guys, we try and identify ourselves as Christians by using a whole lot of things that we could talk about. We talk about our morality, or we talk about our church attendance, or we talk about the way that we vote, of all things, or we talk about all kinds of weird stuff. But guys, when it comes to these guiding truths for the Christian life, the fact and the reality is that just like every other part of being a follower of Jesus, it is not about us and what we do, but it is about Him. And it is about Christ. In fact, great Alliance pastor A.W. Tozer once said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Think about that. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the single most important and defining thing about who you are. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis kind of breaks this down even further by giving us four categories. And he says, you can think about Jesus in one of four ways, but in your mind, you have to decide if Jesus is one of these four because there is nothing else that he can be described as. Most of you are probably familiar with this, but he says that in your mind, Jesus can either be a liar. He can be someone who simply was not who he claimed to be, and he knew it. You can say that Jesus was a lunatic. He is someone who thought he was somebody, but in fact he was not. You can say that Jesus was a legend, right? He was someone who was not what others imagined him and made him out to be. Or, and I think rightly, you can say that Jesus is Lord. He is who he says he is. And that is proved in his birth and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. You see, in our culture today, we are constantly facing attacks, confusions, distortions, and denials of who Jesus is as he has revealed himself to be through his word. Right? Well, my Jesus is this. I'm a sinner. And I, when I was in college, I loved all of the dumb Will Ferrell comedy movies. And there's one called Talladega Nights, where he is a race car driver named Ricky Bobby. And there's a scene in there where he and his best friend are describing to each other how they prefer their Jesus when they say grace. 
And they go to all kinds of crazy things. And Well, I like to think of, of my Jesus as, as the little baby Jesus in his little golden diaper of splendor. Because well, I like to think of, of my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt singing front man on simple man from Leonard Skinner saying like, hey, I'm the Lord, but I'm here to party. And they go through all these things, but the, the reality that, that's revealed in that from our culture is that in our culture, we feel like we get to define who Jesus is. We get to say, well, my Jesus is the loving and the not judgmental Jesus, right? My Jesus is the accepting Jesus who wants me just the way that I am and doesn't need me to change anything. My Jesus is this, or my Jesus is that, or my Jesus is this. But here's the deal. There is one Jesus, and he is who he is. Not who we say that he is. And he has revealed himself through his word. I love the opening to the book of Hebrews where it says, In many times and in many ways God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. But now in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. God has revealed himself. God has shown who he is through Christ. And we have to understand Jesus for Jesus. Not who we want him to be or how we define him, but who he is. This is not just unique to our culture. At the end of the first century, the Apostle John was facing these same kinds of challenges in his culture, particularly fighting Gnosticism and these secret mystical religions. So he wrote this letter. He wrote this letter that has been canonized and come to be known as 1 John in order to correct the errors and make absolutely sure that people got the Jesus question right. There is one question in all of Scripture that chills me to the bone more than any other. And it's when Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. And he says, who do the people say that I am? And they come up with all kinds of answers. Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses. Some say you're David. So, right? They come up with all these heroes of the Old Testament. But then here's the chilling part. Jesus turns to Peter. And he says, but Peter, who do you say that I am? Guys, that is a question that we will all have to answer. There's a question that we all have to deal with and answer in our own hearts. Who do we say that Jesus is? Do we define him by what we think is right and by our own terms, or do we proclaim him for who has, he has revealed himself to be? We have to get the Jesus question right, and John knew that, and so he focuses this letter on that. So this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us to focus our hearts and minds on Jesus. Because that's how John is starting his letter. He's essentially starting by saying, hey, look here. This, right, this is the first thing I'm saying to you. Why? Because this is what it's all about. It's all about Jesus. So look here. So, 1 John, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So this morning, in our time together in God's Word, I want us to see three guiding truths for the Christian life. Three markers that we should look for in our lives to test the authenticity and the genuineness of our following Christ. Here's the first one. We must passionately know Christ. We must passionately know Christ. 
John here in, in this letter is trying to get us to see and understand deeply two things about who Jesus is and who he has revealed himself to be. The first is that he wants us to understand and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is in fact eternally divine. That is a big and fancy way of saying he wants you to know that Jesus Christ is God. There are a lot of world religions today who would say that Jesus is a figure to be admired. Some who would even say that he's a figure that we should follow in the path of. He's a great teacher. But that doesn't go far enough. John wants us to see and understand that Jesus himself is the eternally divine God of the universe. John is saying here in verse 1, that which was from the beginning... John is saying that there has never been a time when Jesus wasn't. There's never been a time when Jesus wasn't. He is the one before the beginning. He is the one in the beginning. And he is the one from the beginning. John is confident in saying this because he learned it from Jesus himself. Who's speaking of his own eternal nature in John 8:58 makes a statement like before Abraham was I am the patriarch the first one the first one of God's people before he was there it was me in John chapter 10 verse 30 Jesus makes this crazy statement that gets people wanting to kill him on the spot where he says the father and I are one. And then he, he brings us further to light in John 14, 9, when he says, the one who has seen me has seen the Father. God has revealed himself to us through his Son. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is called the exact imprint of the nature of God. The exact imprint of the nature of God. Guys, I don't think you fully grasp and understand how beautiful of a concept that this is. The, the eternal, holy, set-apart other God who is transcendent above all other things and who is completely unreachable was standing in front of them speaking. Why do we make such a big deal at Christmas about the incarnation? Why is the phrase Emmanuel, God with us, such a big deal? Because we literally have God. We literally have God. Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the great teacher. Amen. Jesus is not just a loving example. He is the source of love. All right. All right. Why? Because Jesus is not just a human, but he is the eternally divine pre-existent and everlasting God who spoke everything that has ever been into creation. He is the one who now holds all things together by the word of his power. Jesus is God himself. That right there should put the problem that we have of trying to define Jesus on our own into perspective. We're uh, delicately working with Lawson right now on how it is and is not appropriate to talk to mommy and daddy and how often mommy and daddy have to tell Lawson things that he needs to do and correct him, but that doesn't go the other way. But when we try and define Jesus on our own terms, that's exactly what we're doing to God. We are looking at the eternal all-powerful God of the universe and saying, no, I'm going to decide who you are. 
not you. I'm in charge. I love that passage in Job that Dawn read this morning. I love it when we get pictures of God being a little sassy. And Job starts asking questions and God just kind of goes, in the loving, correcting way of a father, just goes, Job, who are you? Can you do the things that I can do? Were you there in the nothingness that I spoke the light into? But yet, in our arrogance, we think that we get to define who Jesus is. Mm. Jesus is the eternal God. John goes on. Concerning the word of life. You often hear Jesus called the word of God, right? John chapter 1, verse 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the existent word of God. As, as the Father speaks creation, Jesus is the agent of creation going out from the Father to create. He is called the life. Really simply, because he is life. He is the source of life. He is the creator of life. He is the giver of life. And he is the sustainer of life. We see him being the creator of life as he works in creation. We see him as the giver of life, both when he breathes the first breath of life into Adam in the garden, and also when he stands before the tomb of Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. I love, I heard an old pastor say one time that Jesus specifically had to call Lazarus by name, because if he just would have said, come forth, every grave would have opened up. He's the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. Hebrews 1 tells us that now he is upholding all things by the power of his word. And ultimately, he shows and he proves himself to be the eternal source of life in his resurrection. Death has no power over him. He has won the victory over death because he is life. This kind of life is not possible if Jesus is just a good teacher or a moral role model. This life is only possible if Jesus truly is the eternally divine God of the universe. But John doesn't want us just to stand in awe and behold the, the deity of Christ. God, John doesn't want us to stand there and, and look up at the transcendent nature of Christ and, and, and worship him as that, which we absolutely could and he is absolutely deserving of because he is all of those things. But John also wants, to understand not, wants us to understand not just the transcendence of Christ, but the imminence of Christ. Not just the bigness of Jesus, but the intimacy of Jesus. Our elders got together yesterday uh, in the morning just to have a time of prayer, and John Stoffer was sharing with us a little bit about uh, what he was going to be teaching in Sunday school this morning on the intimacy of Jesus and the intimacy of God with his people. And, and it is a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. When I think about the idea of the transcendent God becoming flesh to dwell with us, it, it moves me in my very soul. Because we are not deserving of it and we are not worthy of it. But John wants us to see beyond a shadow of a doubt not only that Jesus is divine, but that Jesus is also human. John here presents a defense of the real and genuine humanity of Christ. Even by the time John is writing this towards the end of the first century, there are already groups that are arguing over the fact of, well, is, is Jesus God who just appears to be a man? Is he a man who has some special relationship with God? And, and they were starting to work out some of the, the earliest forms of, of, of formalized Trinitarian doctrine. And John here, as a, a living testimony, as an eyewitness to the experience of who Jesus is, is putting this all into perspective for us and says, no, 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 he's not one or the other, he's both. And you can't understand that, but he is. Right? Not only is he the one from the beginning, but then in verses 1 and 2, John says that 
We have heard him and we have seen him with our eyes and we have touched him with our hands. To, to hear something and to see something and to touch something, especially in the, the intimate way that John is saying that of we have seen him with our eyes and touched him with our hands. This is very intimate language here and it is also very experiential language. John is saying we have experienced Experienced. We have experienced the living God of the universe who has come as a man. It is, it is critically important that we understand what John's talking about. He is laying foundations for what we as Christians must most believe about Jesus. Jesus is, is not a myth. He's not a fable or a fairy tale. He is not a ghost or an illusion. He is indeed the eternal God who took on flesh. He is the word that became flesh. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. Not half God and half man. Not all God and no man. Not all man and no God. He is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, fully divine and fully human. He's the one who was and is and is to come, having no beginning or end. He has eternally coexisted in perfect fellowship with the Father and at Bethlehem came to be with us in order that we, in order that He might also bring salvation to His people that we may share in that fellowship. That is the Jesus who reveals himself in the Bible. But we must experience that Jesus. You see, passionate knowledge, we must passionately know God, know Christ. That's not rooted up here. Passionate knowledge is not rooted up here. It's rooted right here. We must not passionately know about Christ. We must passionately know Christ. It is so, so easy, especially for those of us who have grown up in the church, to know about Jesus and be satisfied in that. But that's not knowing Christ. Many of you know about my wife. Many of you know she's very artistic. She's very well-spoken, very biblically literate, that she has a passion for God's word. You know that she has a great sense of humor and loves making fun of me. You know that she puts up with eating Mexican food probably more than she should because of me. You may know where she went to school. You may know her family. You may know her background. But you can learn all of that from reading about her. We're the same way with Jesus. We can learn about Jesus' divinity and we can learn about his power and the fact how we should be in awe with him and we can know all about Jesus. And it cannot matter at all. In fact, I would argue that it doesn't. Because we see at one point in the New Testament where Jesus comes and he's encountered by a group of demons who were inside of a person and they immediately acknowledge who he is and the full reality of who he is. And they say, what do you have to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High? They got it right. They know all about Jesus. You want to hear a, a, a crazy thing that I, I believe is true? The devil is a better theologian than you will ever be. They do not know Christ. You can know all of those things about Karsten. You can know all of those things about my wife. But until you have spent time with her, 
until you have been with her, until you have seen her walk through hard situations, you will never know the grace that she has and the mercy and the love and the compassion and the things that truly on the inside of her soul make her who she is. It's the same way with Jesus. We can know all about Jesus, but that knowledge of who Jesus is will never push us in a passionate way to worship him. The Bible calls us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Tasting is experiencing. We have to know Christ. Carson and I dated about two years before we got married, um, and we did not live in the same city until we'd been engaged for three months. Our entire relationship was built over FaceTime, basically. And we would talk for hours a day. But it is through those conversations, through those spending time with each other that our relationship developed and we developed a love and a passion for one another. Guys, it's the same with Christ. How do you experience Christ? It's through his word. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See thousands of years of the faithfulness of God for his people. Taste and see the way that that Christ sacrificially in love as the God of all the universe gives himself for you. Where is the character and the nature of Christ given to us? It is here in his word. This is how we come not just to know about him. But when we approach his word and when we develop a passion for his word in the power of his spirit, it doesn't just hit us in the head, but it hits us right in the heart. And it develops a love for a Christ. And it develops this type of knowledge that will grow our passion for him. We must passionately know Christ. Secondly, we must also passionately share Christ. Even in the last three minutes, I've talked about my wife like three times because I love her. And there are very few things in this world I would rather talk about than her. John, look look with me in in verse three, right? That which we have seen and we have heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? John is saying because of the experience that we have had with Christ, because of the way that we passionately know Christ, our greatest desire is that you would experience it also. I love the way that Charles Spurgeon talks about the the, the goal of preaching and pastoring and sharing the gospel. He says, I am just one beggar telling another beggar where bread is to be found. When we know Christ when we taste and see the beauty of Christ, not just intellectually, but in the depths of our soul, it gives us no other goal in this life than to see other people experience that same kind of knowledge about Him. That same kind of knowledge of Him. That same experience that that we have had. We have tasted and we have seen how good He is. And I just want you to know also. That's what John is saying here. Uh, If you have never eaten one of my wife's ooey-gooey butter cookies, they will change your life. I have literally become an evangelist for ooey-gooey butter cookies. She made a batch of them and gave them to me when we were at the last church, and I brought them with me to like, and like gave one to everybody. I was like, you've got to have this. It's so good. Why will I be that excited about trying to share a cookie that I think is so delicious with people, but I won't tell them about Jesus who has saved my soul? Guys, A marker of our authenticity in our relationship with Christ, a marker that shows us that we truly have an intimate, passionate knowledge of who Jesus is, is that that knowledge will drive us and push us to share him with absolutely everyone who will listen and even those who won't. You see, the impact that Jesus had on John and his followers uh, and his other followers compels them to take this message of the gospel to everyone, everywhere. Pastor Paul talked about this last week. These disciples, right? 
And we talked about a little bit with our elders yesterday. These disciples were, were huddled up in this room. But when they knew that Christ had risen, there was nothing that could hold them back. And 40 days later, we see the Holy Spirit come down and indwell His church, and Pentecost happens, and the world gets overturned for Christ. What they had experienced in Jesus, they wanted others to experience also. John gives us this idea here that as followers of Christ... We are to, because of of what Jesus has done for us, because of what Christ means to us, we are to go out and we are to share Christ. Because we want to see people come into the two fellowships that we have. And here John tells us, right? He says, uh, let's see, in verse... In verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John here is pointing to this reality that we are trying to share Christ, to bring people into the benefit and the glorious relationship of these two fellowships. Fellowship with one another in the local church, which is compelled by a shared faith and passion for Jesus above everything else, and also fellowship with the Father and the Son. You see, this fellowship that we have with one another, right? we call ourselves the, the FAC family for a reason. Because in Christ, we are brothers and sisters. We have fellowship in the body. We have fellowships with other believers. And and that fellowship is rooted on nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else than our shared experience of Jesus. Our fellowship with one another is not rooted on the preaching style of the pastor. It's not rooted on the different missions emphasis that we're a part of. It's not rooted on the musical stylings of the church. It's not rooted on political affiliations. It's not rooted on race. It's not rooted on socioeconomic status. The fellowship that we have with one another, if we, if we staked our claim on any of those things, it would fall apart. But the fellowship that we have with one another is rooted on Christ and our shared experience of Christ above everything else because it is the only thing that will mend the disagreements and the differences in all of those other areas. We can disagree on if I should be playing the electric guitar or the organ. We can disagree on who you voted for for president. We can disagree on should we preach topically or expositionally. We can disagree on should we support this missionary or should we support that missionary. We can disagree on those things in love with one another because we are bound by something far greater than that and it's the blood of the Son of God that was shed for us on Calvary so that we can be brought together and become not only the first alliance family but the family of God. This is why the church should not be constrained by any cultural, racial, financial, political, or any other types of banners. It is about Christ and Christ alone. We plant the banner of Jesus and His cross, and that is our battle flag. We talk about, is that a hill worth dying on? Well, folks, as Christians, the only hill worth dying on is the hill of Calvary. We are united by something that transcends all the other things of this world. And because of that, our unity should transcend all of the other disagreements of this world. We should want to invite anyone and everyone who desires to follow Jesus into the fellowship that we have as Christ's church. Cultural issues aside. God has given His people this gift in order that we may labor together to grow in godliness, to fight sin, and to share the gospel. Following Jesus was never made to be done in isolation. We must do it supporting one another, putting aside every barrier that this world wants to set up in our way because our only focus is Jesus. Danny Aiken, the president of Southeastern Seminary, over in Wake Forest, he puts it in really clear terms for us. He says this, 
He says, we as Christians must never forget that we have more in common with Chinese Christians in China or an African believer in Africa or a Christian brother in South America than a next door neighbor who does not know Christ. And we must never forget that this eternal life that has transformed us is the eternal life that we must proclaim to our neighbors here and among the nations in order that they might become part of our family as well. We have fellowship with one another because we have a passionate knowledge of Christ. And so we passionately share Christ to try and bring reconciliation to one another in a world that desperately needs it. But not only do we have fellowship with God or fellowship with one another, but we also have fellowship with God. We have been adopted into a family, not just the first alliance family, but the family of God. When I was growing up, the church that I was a part of, every week we would sing that song. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Right? We would sing that song and we'd have a time of greeting every morning. That is not to open up a discussion on if we should have a greeting time or not. But we would sing that song. Why? Because we were reminding ourselves of our identity. Not just what were we a church, but we were the family of God. We have been adopted into a family. One commentator says it this way, when Christ becomes your Savior, God becomes your Father. When Christ becomes your Savior, God becomes your Father. This is why being a Christian is so special. No other religion in the world focuses on the intimate relationship that God shares with his people. Not only as Savior, but as our good and loving Father. I have some close friends who recently went through the adoption process. It is crazy to me how much it costs to adopt a child crazy the thousands and tens of thousands of dollars that it cost them to go through the adoption process but even that i think points to a beautiful reality that for us to be adopted into the family of god it did not come cheap you see for us to be saved it is all by grace and it is certainly free but it was not cheap Because it cost the very life of the Son of God for us. There was a cost for our adoption that God the Father paid through the sacrificial work of His Son. Oh, the depths of the love of God. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me, to him, to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die? The love that we experience in the fellowship with one another and the love that we experience through our adoption into the fellowship of the Father and the Son through the sacrificial death of Christ should drive us to passionately share Christ because as a beggar who has found bread, our heart should break for those who haven't. Quickly and lastly, Not only must we passionately know Christ, not only must we passionately share Christ, but I think this is a big one for us. We must passionately enjoy Christ. Right? This is what John is talking about in verse 4. He lays all of this out. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. 
John's already said in verse 2 and verse 3 that they're testifying and sharing these things concerning Christ so that others may come to know Him. But here in verse 4, John gives us another personal reason, and he says that it is so that His joy may be made complete. Over the last almost three years now, I've got to experience this firsthand and I'm sure most of you who are parents have also gotten to experience this firsthand because uh, I get a similar type of feeling uh, when I get to share stories and pictures and things about Lawson, right? Uh, I'm sure Courtney and Donna and Wes are super tired of me coming in and being like, hey, look at this picture of my kid eating a popsicle in the bathtub. Isn't he cute? All right, because I do it all the time. But I love getting to share with people all the stories and all the things that he does that, that's so you know, cute and all the ways that, that he's just awesome. But here's why. It's really for a selfish reason. When I tell these stories and when I talk to people about my son, it reminds me of how much I love that little stinker. Right? It reminds me of how much joy he brings to me as his dad. And it stirs in me something else. Likewise, that's what John is saying here. He's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you about the reality and the truth of, of who Jesus is and how I've experienced him. Why? Because there's nothing I'd rather talk about. And when I talk to you about him, it reminds me of who he is and it breaks my heart anew and gets me excited for who Jesus is. John says, when I testify about Christ to you. And when I talk to people about who He is, it reminds me of how much I love Him. It reminds me of how much joy I have in being part of the adopted family of God and how much I enjoy being in the presence of Jesus. One of the great confessional statements of church history is the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1647. Also known as the Westminster Catechism. The first question of the Westminster Catechism is, what is the chief end of man? Or what is the main purpose of humanity? And the answer is that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy His presence forever. Beautiful. Amen. I think it could be better. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, has, has talked a lot about this. And one of the things that, that he says is that, uh, and, and he believes that the Westminster divines would agree with him on this if he brought it up to them, but they're long dead. Uh, but he says that he thinks that that statement would be better said this way, that the chief purpose of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever and then he says this god is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him does does jesus still stir our hearts does jesus still bring us joy have we become too comfortable with christ have we let Jesus just become part of our church thing and gotten so used to it all that it doesn't move us or that we don't even recognize Him anymore for who He is? Do we find our deepest and most satisfying joy in Christ? I love it when we get to the book of Revelation. Because that is one of the huge themes throughout that book. Why is heaven so glorious? Why is the new creation so great? It's because we are in the presence of God. There will be no more need for sun and moon or stars because the Lord will be their light. Do we long for the day to have eyes unveiled from sin and stand in the presence of Christ. 
and in this life do we enjoy Christ from a, pa- from a point of passionate knowledge of knowing who He is and tasting and seeing that He is good? Do we enjoy Him in the depth of our soul in a way that will sustain us through the storm? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. God is glorified when we find our joy in Him. And we can truly, from the depths of our soul, sing the words of that old hymn. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Only that kind of enjoyment of Christ will see you through the difficulties and the pains that come along with living in a broken and sinful world. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. So this morning, as our time together comes to an end, I want to challenge us all to to take a true heart inventory based on what John has told us. Have you truly come to know Christ and experience His goodness? Or have you become satisfied by knowing about Jesus? Church, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do you have a passion for sharing Jesus with anyone and everyone you possibly can? Do you desire for people to come and to be reconciled to God? And are you willing, eager, and excited to be the conduit through which God brings people to himself? Then lastly, to ponder over this coming week, do you find your greatest and deepest joy in Christ? Are you excited by the truth and the reality of the gospel and who he is? Or have you become so numb to it that it no longer stirs your soul? I pray that over these next days, each one of us would take a long and truthful look at our own hearts. And that we would every day fall more in love with Christ, our glorious Savior. For our joy, for His glory, for the peace of those who will be saved by his grace because we love them enough to share the reality and the truth of who Jesus is.